0: Welcome to Balance of Power on 103.9, 1450 WKXL, nhtalkradio.com, also available wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ken Kale, joined by our all-star panel, two-time U.S. Representative Paul Hodes, former senior staffer and campaign manager Matt Robeson, and a columnist and political analyst Alicia Preston. The Lincoln Project, a collaboration of prominent anti-Trump Republican operatives, including former New Hampshire GOP chair and 2008 Paul Hodes' congressional opponent, Jennifer Horn, It was the darling of the Democrats over the summer as it went after Donald Trump with viral video ads. This past week, the group collapsed, however, amid recriminations, allegations of predatory behavior by one of its founders and financial revelations showing that many of the founders made millions off the effort. Was the Lincoln Project a valuable enterprise, or, Paul Hodes, was it all a con? Yeah.
1: Uh, well, you know, from a Democrat standpoint, um, it was a valuable political exercise. We got more television ads um, and and really good ads. I mean, they were generally uh, among the best ads of the 2020 political cycle because they came from inside the Republican establishment. And when the ads come from inside, they have a particular kind of bite, a bit of scathing denunciation that not even – uh, not even a fervent Democrat can quite muster. So from that standpoint, sure, pile on. Um, and the Lincoln Project represented a a a home for disgruntled Republicans of conscience who just decided that their bread was better buttered by being uh, traditional more traditional Republicans than than the. Trumpistas, the trumpeters who have overtaken the now bankrupt Republican Party. And it was wonderful to see George Conway getting, uh, you know, getting Kellyanne Conway all flustered by leading the charge. You could only imagine the dinner table gossip between George and Kellyanne. What's the Lincoln Project doing today? I'm not telling you you're living in an alternative reality. No, you are. So so that was fun. And like all good organizations, oh, how the mighty have fallen. Surprise, surprise, a sex scandal. I thought we we were much too mature to even worry about sex scandals. So one of the founders went after a 100 little boys. I mean, really, what, what's that among among friends? And and then there's the financial side. Oh, I'm so surprised people stole money from their organization in politics to line their own pockets. And let's not forget, however, the discipline meted out to Jennifer Horn, who had the temerity to ask for two hundred and fifty thousand dollars a year, a hairdresser, a Mercedes Benz, no uh, black jelly beans in the um, in the green room and everything else that she ever wanted from the Lincoln Project, but she was turned down. Oh, it's so good to have something with principles.
2: So before we go to an actual Republican to set us straight on all this, who has a, a real valuable insight and opinion, let's, let's have a little squabble among Democrats for a second. Allow me to say to my former boss and brilliant insight analyst, Paul Hodes, Au contraire, mon frère, I disagree with your premise. I disagree that there was any value in the Lincoln Project. I mean, Republicans, off the record, quietly have been saying to me for almost a year that they were having a major eye roll reaction to the Lincoln Project. It was their assessment was these were people who were basically stuck in Republican politics; they weren't going anywhere, and. You know, so I agree with you there, Paul. It's not surprising they made out well professionally and I don't have any objection to them doing it. You know, they can they can go into business. It, it's a free country. It's free enterprise, free speech, knock yourself out. And look, I do think there were people, George Conway among them. I, I would even credit former GOP chair, Jennifer Horn, who we know well, Steve Schmidt. They, they, I think were motivated by a degree of honest conviction about what they were about. My problem is that, there is limited evidence that their ads, let alone political ads at all in the presidential contest, work at all. We know from political science that standard political ads have almost no persuasive power. They barely register in people's memories. They have little lasting effect. We spent $8 billion of the $14 billion spent in the 2020 election collectively on television ads. And look, among operatives, right, Alicia knows what I'm talking about here. If you have even a small comms advantage, you know, if you're, if you're out communicating the other side for a few weeks, 30%, 50% more communication, that's considered a pretty good hammer blow. Well, in 2016, Hillary Clinton outspent Donald Trump by three to one down the stretch on TV and lost. In 2020, Democrats outspent Republicans two to one on TV, including in the critical post Labor Day stretch, And they barely moved the margin in multiple polling averages across multiple states. And finally, we know that the major outlet for the Lincoln Project's ads was on Twitter. And we know that Twitter is significantly further to the left than the real world. So in essence, in my view, what you had here was a vanity project, a sort of a circle of life for Democrats where Democrats finance a project to create mean ads against Donald Trump on social media, which they then watched. They got all excited about. They felt politically vindicated by. And so they gave more money, which led to more ads. That is my view. I think it was essentially a zero sum nothing. I don't think it was intended as a con, but that is one Democrat's point of view. I will stop
1: now. And I just will respond before Alicia, please, please. And say thank God, Robeson is no longer in the political strategy game because he is trying to take the bread out of the mouths of an entire political establishment whose career has been built on designing and running and buying and then talking about the useless advertising that the Lincoln Project did so well.
3: I first want to note that I have worked for numerous political action committees over the years, and I just want to be on record saying that I've never made that kind of money, (laughs) and I've never (laughs) heard of this level of funds being spent on these kinds of things. Um, I, I don't know anyone of all my friends and colleagues that work for political action committees that have made millions off doing it, so I've got some trepidation there, but here's my thought of the Lincoln Project to start with. I've had concerns for quite some time over the group because, you know, if you want to create an organization that strictly says we don't support the Republican president, we're Republicans, here's why. There's a market for that. There's a market for that with independents. There's a market for that with a minority of Republicans for that election. But they didn't just do that. They went the next step. They said, and we're going to oppose any Republican who supports Donald Trump in the U.S. Senate. And in 10 states, they spent millions of dollars doing just that, um, including over a million in Georgia, which was the you know runoff election that determined the balance of the Senate. So when you don't just say this politician is unsavory because there is a market for that and there is a group of people, independents and Republicans who believe that, but you decide to go after Republicans and potentially have a hand in upending the control of the United States Senate, you are not republicans who just want to uh, you know support the sanctity of the party and remove president trump you are you know just spoilers who want to make more money and maybe when that evolved because that wasn't their initial mission when it evolved that more money could come in if they targeted in these 10 states from democrats that it became this terrible cycle and i think that's probably what occurred and i did not support in any way shape or form them going after the 10 Senate campaign that they did. Um, As for the influence, look, Matt, you're right in part about political advertising, but here's what it did do. The Lincoln Project told some concerned, questionable Republicans about the trajectory of the Trump administration and some conservative leaning independents that it's okay to not support President Trump. And then the furtherance of it's okay to not support these US Senate candidates. It gave them a home. And the home is very hidden because people, a lot of people were afraid, Republicans and conservative independents, to say they don't support President Trump. It gave them an okay to not support with him. And in that way, it may have been influential and it may have participated in determining the outcome of the Senate.
0: Okay, we move on. Speaking of Lincoln. The San Francisco Board of Education voted recently to rename 44 of its schools currently named after prominent figures in an attempt to purge the district of homages to what it said were controversial people with ties to racism, sexism, or slavery. Among those schools set to be renamed are schools named after uh, Abe Lincoln, George Washington, and even current U.S. Senator Dianne Feinstein. Is this a a reasonable measure based on an evolving view of history or a case of the woke left going overboard? What say you, Alicia?
3: I think it's the stupidest thing I've ever heard in my life. (laughs) I just, I can't even wrap my head around it. The idea that for racial justice, you're going to remove Abe Lincoln's name from a building, that unto itself, forget the other 39 that unto itself is so misguided, is so pandering and so soft. I mean, it's as bad as the removal of the statue of President Lincoln standing over a chained kneeling slave. People said that was insulting. No, he was the one reaching out his hand to free him. We've lost all Um, Well, we've lost all common sense, but we've also lost any imagery and any understanding of what these moments in time meant, right? We just complain nowadays. Oh, that might be offensive. Oh, well, he said this once back in the 19th century. Oh, well, we've lost perspective on history. And that is a very, very dangerous thing to have done. Mr. Hodes. Ah,
1: come on. Forget about it. It's San Francisco. You know, drink your coffee black, eat your pasta warm. It's San Francisco. Everything is very, very politically correct. Look, I'm I I am um, uh, these days I'm constrained. I I squash myself into a small square, a little cube My, my my woke children in their 30s have educated me about political correctness. I'm no longer um, demeaning any uh, oppressed minority group in any way uh, with with bad accents that Matt will call me on for being bad accents. I'm, I'm I'm careful with what I say and what I think. But come on, people getting rid of Abraham Lincoln on a high school because it's some because Abraham Lincoln somehow was 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 not on the curve of political correctness. George Washington. Well, okay, we're reexamining American history. And Dianne Feinstein, I guess Democrats don't like Diane anymore um, because I don't know. She's not uh, she's uh, she can't remember where she came from. But But it's San Francisco, the bleeding edge of political wokeness. I think, folks, I I think it's going a little too far by a lot. It's going a little too far.
0: What say you, Matt? What bothers me
2: here is that we're all talking about this. It's so politically stupid. The left seems to be incapable of thinking one step in front of their own toes and, and foreseeing, hey, you know, if we do this, this is going to paint a caricature of ourselves that will be roundly attacked with justification. What really bothers me about this, honestly, is it's not just that the schools are currently closed. It's not just that our kids are not getting educated, including the children of San Francisco, and that the school board there voted, spent their time to vote six to one to do this. It's that It's in the context of the most recent set of testing results internationally places U.S. students a very unimpressive 38th out of 71 countries in math and 24th in science. California's poor students, the the poor students in California, performed worse on the national exam that was uh, released by the National Center for Education Statistics than needy kids from all but one other state, the state of Alaska. So they are 49th out of 50. And if this is about racial justice, if this is about kids, if it's about black kids, if it's about African-American student achievement, California's black boys are struggling the most of all, according to national test data. And San Francisco happens to be the state's worst county for black student achievement. These are the numbers, these are the facts. And in the midst of all of this, if you really want to do something for racial justice, for equality, for equity, for helping African-American young people, especially not to mention all students, Hispanic students, white students, Asian students, then maybe you should focus on getting the schools open, increasing achievement and a little bit less on the names of your school and whether attaching Abraham Lincoln to it is somehow a negative educational factor. I'm pretty confident that it's not.
3: But if I may, isn't this what's happening everywhere across the country with every issue? They go for what's easy, right? Because addressing true educational racial equality is really hard. And so what we're gonna do is we're gonna show we care with this ridiculous renaming of the schools. And that's going to be how we stand up and say, see, we care about you. And you see this everywhere. You know, I I live in Hampton, New Hampshire. I went to Winnicott High School. And last year we dealt with a movement to remove Winnikon Warriors as a mascot. And I weighed in and I said, and because of, you know, the Native Americans. And I weighed in and said, you want to help Native Americans? There are 12,000 living in South Dakota that don't have clothes or food to eat. Do a food drive and get a kid to drive out there and bring them some food, bring them some clothes and basic necessities. But that's hard, and that takes work. It's much easier to do an online petition to change a name of something than to dig in and actually affect change.
2: I totally agree, and I would just build on your point to say it doesn't have to be an either-or. Look, I recognize that I'm a white man, and, you know, if, if the students of Abraham Lincoln Elementary in San Francisco feel that that name is a problem for them, I am all ears. I am open to being educated on this topic and I in no way want to assert my own views, the the history as I've learned it, my own perceptions on their lived experience. So if you want to change the name as a school board, have at it, have at it. But do the stuff that Alicia's talking about too, By all means, show me your plan, San Francisco School Board, for addressing the educational achievement gap that is particularly and disproportionately impacting young African-American students in your schools. Once you do that, then you have as long a runway as you want to debate names and, and, and that kind of thing.
1: I don't think any of you really have come to grips with the tragedy that it means for a student to have to go to a school every day and read the name Abraham Lincoln over the doorway of the school. That has to be the defining disaster of that student's daily life at that school. And the reason for the poor performance statistics that Matt Robeson in clear and rational terms laid out for us, it has to be the name. It can only be the name because it's San Francisco. And in San Francisco, names matter. And, 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 and so I think that you're, you've, you're, you've both missed the boat on this. I've, I've changed my mind. I think names matter. And I can't imagine anything more important than renaming the school from now on, the Abraham Lincoln High School in San Francisco is going to be called high school number thirty seven. And that is going to inspire real performance in the students.
0: Hey, Alicia, is uh, Winnicotton still the Warriors?
3: We are still the Warriors the good guys won. And I'd like to note um, that I am twice as Native American as Elizabeth Warren originally claimed to be. So I guess nowadays <laughs> that gives me more cred on the issue.
0: <laughs> good. I'm, I'm happy when a kind of is still the Warriors. And yeah. hey, we have a programming note uh, for you. This week, there is a brand new show that uh, Matt and Paul are introducing, broadcast on WKXL and available as a podcast as well. So Matt, uh, tell us what the show is and what the First episode is all about.
2: Absolutely. It's called Great Ideas that captures the theme that we're going for with the show. Paul and I felt, and I think a lot of Americans feel, that there is a space out there. There's a gap for thoughtful, constructive, positive discussion about ideas, about issues, about policies. Policy sounds like a dry word, but what we're talking about is the decisions that we make together about how we're going to help each other, how we're going to do the kinds of things Alicia was talking about, how are we going to construct our our government and our society to make people's lives better off. And you might have ideas about that if you're conservative, you might have ideas about that if you're liberal. And so what we've done is we've assembled a rotating cast of subject matter experts that come from the top think tanks in Washington, th- these are the people that our leaders in Washington listen to who are always bending their ear about, here's how you could make healthcare a little bit better. Here's how you could fix our cybersecurity so we're not constantly getting hacked by the Russians. Here's how you could get rid of the whole reconciliation process. So we're interviewing these folks. We're giving listeners information useful information about how these issues work we we spend the first half of the show just doing a basic explainer how do, how does health how does the ACA work how does reconciliation work so that people are, can be empowered with information and facts about these issues so that they can think about them on their own and then we're hearing from these experts their best ideas their most innovative ideas for how to make these these things work a little bit better. And we've got a great lineup. Like I said, we're covering the ideological spectrum from pretty conservative uh, to the middle to pretty darn liberal. And we're, we're just having positive conversations. So I I hosted the first set of episodes. I think Paul's going to get into the mix, hosting some more going forward. And it's, it's broadcast here on WKXL available as the great ideas podcast the very first episode is me interviewing a healthcare expert from a conservative think tank, and he has three great ideas for compromises that Republicans and Democrats could do right now that would give healthcare coverage and lower costs to millions of Americans. So I hope people will check it out.
0: Uh, last week, we talked about the immigration on the program, and now uh, news has emerged that Democrats are rallying around an effort to go small trying to pass popular immigration bills that have already uh, had bipartisan backing, including legislation to provide a pathway for citizenship for the undocumented group known as DREAMers and uh, immigrants from war-torn areas. The left uh, is angry about not pursuing a more comprehensive uh, immigration reform. Is it a good idea for Democrats to pursue the low-hanging fruit or... Are they missing an opportunity to finally fix what is a, a a gigantic problem, Congressman Hodes?
1: Well, you know there are a lot of gigantic problems out there these days. I mean, the problems are not getting smaller, and there's a lot of a lot of things to tackle. And uh, Democrats would like to, if possible, bring along. Uh, rep- reluctant Republican here and there. So the short answer is it's probably not stupid to uh, try to pick some low hanging fruit uh, in the great immigration debate, because after all, that has been one of the hottest of the uh, political hot buttons of all time that the Republicans have managed to flog into indecency. Uh, to the detriment of democrats and i i think democrats are not looking to get into any more fights than they absolutely have to. so so i'll start out by saying yeah not the stupidest thing i ever heard.
0: alicia
3: first of all i don't think it's small and i think they should go forward with this and here's why i don't think it's small if you are i don't know 25 you're married you have a child you're working in the American society, you're paying your taxes, you're living in your home, paying rent or your mortgage. And you've been here since you were five years old because your parents brought you here illegally. The concept of deportation hanging over your head isn't small. I think people who have come here from war-torn nations where women are systematically raped, children are taken into servitude by force, you're here wondering if you have to go back to that country. That's not small. What it is are things that the majority of Americans can agree on. And I hope they don't muddy the waters by throwing in things that we're going to have debates over the next year about and get done what needs to be done for the people that truly um, have either earned it, deserve it, or as humane, as a humane society, we will simply provide.
2: Matt? Beautifully said, Alicia. Totally agree. And I, I understand in legislating and Paul knows this as a former member of Congress, better than anyone. I understand the spoonful of sugar impulse that when you have a group of of issues that you can bundle together, that you need the ones that people can all agree on and are even anxious to get done in order to make the medicine go down of the other pieces. It is very hard to fix some of the thornier, more politically fraught problems of immigration, And so there is an understandable impulse, especially on the part of advocates, to say, let's not give away the things that we all agree on because we've got to get these other pieces done. I get it. I do. There is some historical precedent for taking the let's do what we agree on now first approach. If you look back at the Civil Rights Bill of 1957, it was dismissed by civil rights advocates as a really uh, anodyne, light, almost substanceless measure. But LBJ pushed it through when he was the majority leader of the Senate because he firmly believed that you needed to create a pathway. You needed to get senators, segregationist senators, on board with – and by the way, these were all Democrats at the time, to be clear – you had to get them used to the fact that they could legislate in this area and and get away with it politically. You You had to start breaking out of the inertia, out of the resistance on this issue. And so I think there is a strong argument for taking the same kind of approach now. I think that you've seen momentum, including among Republicans, to get something done on immigration. There is even interest on doing something comprehensive. And there's a strong argument that if you get this piece, and by the way, as Alicia said, help hundreds of thousands of Americans and our fellow human beings along the way, that would not only be a good thing, but it might also pave the way politically for more progress. The Civil Rights Bill of 1964 obviously followed seven years later we hope that we could make more progress than that sooner than that here, but sometimes you do need to kind
0: of get the ball rolling. Speaking of issues that have been out there a long time, is it high time to have a new federal policy on marijuana? There are only two states now, Nebraska and Idaho, that have never passed any sort of medical marijuana law, And that means that almost every state has a marijuana law that is in violation of federal law. Now, with polls showing support for medical marijuana surpassing 90 percent, does the federal government need to catch up or should it hold the line, Alicia?
3: So let me preface this with this issue is very personal and emotional to me, and I get very angry. About it, My mother had cancer for six years. I lived with her and was her caregiver that time. For five of those years, the cancer had gone into her bones. Periodically, it flares up, and until you can get radiation, you're in a lot of pain. So what would doctors do? Give her narcotics. Give her opiates. She wouldn't take them. She wouldn't take them because they made her kooky. Her pastime was logic problems and crossword puzzle books. She did them hours every day, and when she tried to take them, she couldn't do it, so she lost her joy at home. So she lived in pain. Why? Because medical marijuana wasn't legal then. And the idea that here we are, she's been gone six years, and we still don't have federal policy to allow a drug that can greatly benefit millions of people in America at a far healthier level than the hydromorphones and all the other garbage that they spit out angers me. It upsets me. I've watched someone suffer in pain by refusal to take narcotics, and no one should ever have to go through that. They need to change the scheduling of, medical mar- of marijuana in general. They need to fully legalize medical marijuana um, so that states can carry on without technically being in violation. And you know, recreational marijuana, don't really care, but I think it's ridiculous that it's in the same schedule as heroin.
2: Oh, I think we lost the, the audio on Ken there. Are you, are you prompting,
1: Paul? Is he talking to me? Ken? I think he's talking to you, Paul, Talking to me. OK, Ken, we can't hear you, but I'll weigh right in uh, high times and misdemeanors. You know, look, uh, there is really nothing uh, uh, that I can add on an emotional level to Alicia's story. Um, it is uh, a sad reality that the federal government's um, treatment of marijuana, both medical and recreational, is not only behind the times, but a sad product, actually, of a racist past. The initial uh, laws uh, out outlawing marijuana really had a lot to do uh, with the the view that marijuana was predominantly used by black people. Um, it was introduced by uh, uh, by the alcohol lobby, which wanted to flog alcohol, not marijuana. I mean, it, it's a It's a, you know, uh, reefer madness. Uh, All anybody has to do is go see reefer madness, which should now be a cult classic. So the origins of the prohibition against marijuana uh, are 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 murky and and bad. Um, In terms of health policy, we have unfortunately missed many, many years of what could have been very important research about the various compounds in this naturally occurring substance. Um, This wonderful plant, which in various guises has many different uses from hemp to medicine Um, and in between. Uh, as a psychoactive drug used recreationally, it you know, I mean, marijuana has been used in religious rituals over centuries and centuries in terms of its recreational effect. Let's just say smoking isn't good for you. Smoking anything is not is not healthy. On the other hand, there is No evidence that marijuana is some kind of gateway drug to addiction. In fact, one uh, does not become physically addicted to marijuana the way one does with heroin uh, and other uh, similarly scheduled drugs. So the majority of Americans uh, understand that that we're behind the curve uh, in terms of the federal system, how marijuana is dealt with. Uh, Medical marijuana should be legalized. Um, Recreational marijuana should be decriminalized. When you think about the billions and billions of dollars and the people who are in jail right now uh, for possession of marijuana, that is criminal. It is a, that is a, that is criminal. And uh, we need reform. We need it as soon as possible. Uh, And uh, no thinking person ought to stand in the way at this point.
2: And I really, those were two very insightful and emotional comments that I I can't, uh, I can't possibly uh, add anything to. I, I will say that Um, I find this issue really remarkable from a social perception standpoint, the polling on legalizing marijuana entirely. Forget medical marijuana, where, as you said, Ken, 90% support at this point. Look, Mickey Mouse doesn't get 90% support. Um, What was the most popular American? Tom Brady certainly doesn't. Nothing gets 90% in our society these days. Um, So that's remarkable. But even 25 years ago, support for legalizing marijuana overall was 25% in this country. As of 2020, as of a few months ago, according to Pew polling, it was 68%. And again, in this day and age, getting two thirds of the American public on board with something is a very significant majority. So clearly, social mores have changed. People's views have changed. It is time, obviously, for the federal government to evolve. And the final thing I would say is look, per the last conversation, I understand the hesitancy at the federal level. It was not long ago that I was part of policy conversations as a staffer on Capitol Hill, where all this, all this, the blue dog Democrats, the conservative Democrats, the Southern Democrats would say to you, look, I think probably medical marijuana is a good idea. I just can't be for it because I will get tagged as a lefty socialist. That has clearly changed. Maybe the federal government needs to go incrementally here, start with medical applications, work toward legalization, decriminalization from there. But yes, that initial step is now overdue and broadly, wildly supported by the American people. And we have lost audio on Ken Kale.
0: Can you hear me now? Oh, there we go. Oh, okay. All right. He's
2: um,
1: back. It's
0: uh, <laughs> Some Somehow I shut myself off. And people have been trying to do that for years, and I did it myself. This past week, the uh, CDC released full school opening guidelines, finding it safe to reopen schools as long as masks and social distancing of at least six feet and other measures are used. Now, teachers' unions continue to be wary. And many are saying, why can't we get teachers and school staff vaccinated first? What should be done about schools, Paul Hodes?
1: Well, look, I'm no expert. I've read the reports. I've 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 read the. The studies that show with strict social distancing and mask wearing, uh, think schools are relatively safe. I think that teachers are, are, are frontline essential workers. Um, in order to um, uh, get schools open safely, uh, while I am not a scientific expert, I think it would be absolutely appropriate to classify teachers as frontline essential workers, uh, put them near the uh, near at or near the front of the line for getting vaccinated, um, because getting our schools open is critical to. Uh, to getting our economy working again. Um, uh, parents, uh, t- t- kids are suffering uh, with nothing but on screen learning. Parents are suffering because they've got to take care of their kids and they're not uh, able to go uh, and, and do uh, product- productive work. The schools really are essential, they're, they're, they're at the core of, of what it means to have a functioning society and an economy vaccinate the teachers, stop arguing about it, vaccinate the teachers and put the appropriate measures in the schools, uh, make sure there's testing, make sure there's masks, um, and, and do a lot of testing to really make sure that everything is being done uh, to catch any outbreak or concern. Um, but, but, but focus on it and just get it done. It, it should not be, uh, I don't think it should be a matter of controversy.
0: Lisha, your thoughts on the full-scale reopening of schools?
3: Sure. Well, first of all, I think it's a misconception that all schools are closed. They're not. My stepdaughter's in my school. She's been in school since the beginning of the year. If they get a case, they shut down for a day or two, and they shut down a couple weeks over the holidays. They super clean and they go back in. So all schools are not shut down, and everybody's not remote. Uh, I do not think teachers should jump to the front of the line for a very simple reason. Whose grandmother is the 28-year-old healthy school teacher going to take the vaccine from? because there aren't enough vaccines. There is a finite amount of them, which is why they're prioritizing people at greater risk. Someone with comorbidities, someone over the age of 65. If a 28-year-old, 32-year-old, 40-year-old school teacher takes a vaccine right now because they're a teacher, they are taking it away from one of the people who are in the danger zones of severe illness or fatality. It's just that simple. The CDC says you don't need to have all teachers vaccinated to open schools. My kid's school? Open. It's not a requirement. And we have to remember, if there was unlimited supplies of vaccines and it was simply a speed issue, I'd still probably have the same argument, but it would be a little softer. But we're not talking about that. We're talking about a person who could die from this virus statistically, not getting a shot because a school teacher does. It's wrong.
2: I have a very slightly different take, which is I just think it's worthwhile to start with a question, what problem are we trying to solve here? There are several that have been enunciated over the last year. One problem is parents who desperately need to get their kids back in school so that they can work. A Second problem is kids who are suffering worse educational outcomes and all kinds of mental health challenges because they are not in school. I would just point out, that reopening schools on the basis that we are talking about right now, and the Biden administration has walked its goal back. They've gone from all schools fully open first hundred days to in the first hundred days, all schools having at least one day a week where you're in class most of the time for 50% of students. So that kind of patchwork approach doesn't solve the first problem. 71% of wage and salary workers report no ability to work from home. 43% report no flexibility on when they can start and stop working. So if you're going at this problem from the standpoint of, well, we've got to do this in order to support parents, you're not going to solve that problem by getting the kids in school once a week sometimes. That's not going to allow them to resume the full work schedule that they need. If you're going at it, from the standpoint of we can achieve better educational outcomes, okay, I support that. And I have three school-age kids at home myself. But I would I would question, are you doing it in a way that is going to actually advance that educational goal? If you're rushing people back in order to check a box and say, well, we've got them in school, but you don't have a fully integrated curriculum designed to mesh well between the remote learning environment and the in-school learning environment. And it turns into a giant logistical hassle for teachers who are just trying to check a box to say that you've reopened in person, but you're not driving better educational outcomes for kids. You're not solving that problem either. The upshot is I desperately want my kids back in school. I really do, but we're in February now. I would be willing to sacrifice the rest of this academic year to do it fully, to do it right, to do it everywhere. I'm glad, you know, Alicia's kids are back in school. I would say, get it right the first time, cover that two, that three quarters of American parents who don't have that flexibility in work, and cover all of those kids who need high quality educations.
0: how is it that parochial schools have been able to be open for months and months with uh, very little difficulty, but public schools can't do it?
2: The appeal to a higher power. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that's it. (laughs) Yeah. Look, I mean, let's let's be straightforward about it. Alicia's right. It's, it's, it's a union issue. Um, But look, it's, it's a fraught and complicated thing. I mean, Remember this is emerging data right like there were plenty of statistical indications that we should be concerned going back to the start of the school year there were plenty of anecdotal incidents where people were not following mask and distancing guidelines and there were outbreaks and so all of this comes with a heavy dose of you know you, you have to you have to do things right in order to be able to really reopen the schools so yes i can I, I, I agree i think it's I think it's because it's a union issue. I understand teachers' concerns, and I would just say, you know, let's, rather than fussing and feuding to achieve the Biden standard of one day a week, you know, part of the time or you know, constructing on the fly some kind of Frankenstein monster of of a curriculum and a school schedule to accommodate online and in person and teachers hiding behind barriers, some of whom are vaccinated, some of whom are not, some of whom, to Alicia's point, have, you know, vulnerable people at home. I think we should do this comprehensively. We should do it for everyone. We should do it in a thoughtful way. Let go of this school year and do it right for next school year.
0: Well, we only have about a minute left uh, on the program today, so a uh, little time to delve into any more issues. So, so Matt, why don't you throw out another plug for the new show?
2: Well, I hope that, first of all, everyone will subscribe to this podcast, which is found in the Beyond Politics feed. Wherever you get your podcasts, we're there. Apple, Google, Stitcher, Spotify, Pocket, Breaker. I don't know. I'm making up names now. Um <laughs> it's available there. And then yes, the great ideas podcast also available wherever you get your podcasts. Um, you know, it's something that we frankly strive to achieve on this show, which is a thoughtful, positive, constructive conversation with different points of view, seeing where we can agree, where we can find some common ground, where we can express some great ideas. I think
0: it's a great show and I hope people check it out. All right. And on that note, we wrap it up for Paul Holmes, Matt Robeson, And Alicia Preston, I'm Ken Kale. Join us again next time for Balance of Power.